Well, folks, we are in, um, really, we're in Genesis 27. Um, but uh, I would like to pick up our reading at the last several verses of Genesis 26. And we will read down through um, the first nine verses of chapter 8 as well. Sorry, chapter 28 as well. But before I do that, uh, I, I want to I want to raise a, a theme I think that we can often overlook as we come to this text. And that is that in Genesis 26, you and I are given a picture of Isaac's household. Uh, I said to you, of course, that 26 is devoted primarily to, to reminding us that the blessings that God had promised to Abraham and that God indeed had given to Abraham would be recapitulated in Isaac's life and experience. And And so we find that Isaac, of course, is richly blessed. But that's so important for us and to keep in front of us as we think about the context of our our passage this morning. I think sometimes we can imagine that this family is an impecuniary, small, nomadic tribe. But of course, as we leave chapter 26, we're reminded that Isaac is an affluent man. And not only is he an affluent man, but he's a man who has a large household. If you remember back to Genesis 14, you remember that before Abraham knew the richest blessings, earthly blessings that God would give him, he still had the power to call out hundreds of men in arms. That was before Abraham knew the richness that he was going to encounter later on in the land of promise. But then in chapter 26, we're told Isaac had greater blessings still than his father. So when you and I are thinking about Isaac and his household, you and I have to imagine a family that is incredibly wealthy. In fact, so wealthy that the Philistines are dwarfed by the wealth and by the numerical strength of Isaac's household. We also need to keep in front of us, too, that Isaac's household would very much be as large, if not larger, than what we found Abraham with at the end of his life. We're talking about hundreds, not only just of men, but hundreds of men, women, and children at their disposal. And so as we look at Genesis 27, you and I are to imagine here, really, as it were a royal family, with all of that wealth and all of that power. And chapter 27, then, is a struggle between royal brothers. It's a struggle between princes, as it were. As we come to this text, we pick up our reading there at chapter 26 and verse 34. And beloved, allow me just to remind you once more that this is the inerrant, infallible, the holy word of the living God. And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Bashemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mind and to Isaac, and to Rebekah. And I'll stop there just for a moment. I said to you, I suppose, last time we were together, that really verse 34 is opening up for us a new section of text, and indeed it is. The way that we're dividing our text this morning is really based on what you find in these two verses. As you look at chapter 27, in one sense, you could say it seems to be a well-contained, insulary kind of text. But really, as you look at the text, there are a number of components that that certainly branch beyond um, just the household crisis that we find here in this chapter. And so I think it's best for us to understand that really, at verse 34, you and I are encountering the first crisis that's going to set us up for the rest of chapter 27. And so as we divide the text, we take these first two verses to begin, 
Esau's wives. Our second major section is, of course, what we often think of when we think of this text. It's the blessing of Jacob and Esau. And so that's 1 to 40 of chapter 27. And then, verses 28, 8, and 9, we return to Esau's wives. So really, the inspired historian is, as it were, situating this entire narrative around this idea of Esau being a man of the world and also being a grief to his parents. So we'll pick up our reading once, once more here at verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of chapter 27. And it came to pass, when Isaac was old, probably about 137 years old at this time, which is when Ishmael, that was the age Ishmael reached when he died, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his eldest son, and said unto him, My son, and he said unto him, Behold, here am I. And he said, Behold, now I am old. I know not the day of my death. Uh, just as a footnote, uh, Isaac's going to live 40 more years after this moment. Now therefore, take, I pray thee, thy weapons that quiver in thy bow, and go out to the field, and take me some venison, and make me savory meat such as I love. I want you to notice, um, as we read this text, that there is one emphasis that chapter 27 returns to again and again. We've just encountered it here, but I want you to listen for it as we continue to read. And bring it to me, that I may eat, that my soul may bless thee before I die. And Rebekah heard when Isaac spake to Esau his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt for venison and to bring it. And Rebekah spake unto Jacob her son. Just briefly, I want you to notice the pronouns, and I want you to notice the possessive element here. Esau is Isaac's son. Jacob is Rachel's son. That's also going to be an emphasis we encounter throughout. Saying, Behold, I heard thy father speak unto Esau, thy brother, saying, Bring me venison and make me savory meat, that I may eat and bless thee before the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to that which I command thee. Go now to the flock and fetch me from thence two goats, two good kids of the goats, and I will make them savory meat for thy father such as he loveth. That is the point of emphasis in this text. What is it that Isaac loves? And thou shalt bring it to thy father, that he may eat, and that he may bless thee before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, Esau my brother is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. My father, peradventure, will feel me, and I shall seem to him as a deceiver. And I will bring a curse upon me and not a blessing. Let me just pause there for a moment. We're going to to return to this at the very end of our time this morning. But I want you to notice how in Jacob's mind, the very thing that has been promised might be reversed to him. Remember, the prophecy of chapter 25, of course, was that Jacob, not Esau, would receive the blessing. But what is Jacob afraid of? Instead of a blessing, he would receive a curse. In other words, Jacob here goes to his mother, and he says, I am fearful that that which has 
been decreed to me by election would actually fail to come to me and in a place I would find a curse. Starting again at verse 13. And his mother said unto him, Upon me be thy curse, my son. Only obey my voice and go fetch me them. And he went and fetched and brought them to his mother. His mother made savory meat, such as his father loved. And Rebekah took goodly raiment of her eldest son, Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them upon Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kid of the goats upon his hands and upon the smooth of his neck. And she gave the savory meat and the bread which she had prepared under the hand of her son Esau. And he came unto his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I. Who art thou, my son? And Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. I have done according as thou badest me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac said unto his son, How is it that thou hast found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord thy God brought it to me. I want to pause just there for a moment. I want you to notice that here very clearly the narrator is reminding us that Jacob's duplicity is, is now reaching a new height. He invokes the name of God. He invokes the providence of God, as it were, to, to contribute to his scepterfuge. This is a moment, this is obviously a violation of the third commandment, but this is a moment where you and I are supposed to note that Jacob here is inexcusable. The old Jewish commentators, um, Arashi and, and others in the medieval period, they, ought, they sought many ways to try to excuse the patriarch. But that's obviously not what the inspired historian is doing at all. He is, as it were, making sure we know that Jacob's sin is grievous. Beginning here again at verse 21. And Isaac said unto Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. And Jacob went near unto Isaac his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice. The hands are the hands of Esau. And he discerned him not because his his hands were hairy, as his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, Art thou my very son Esau? And he said, I am. And he said, Bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's venison, that my soul may bless thee. And he brought it near to him that he did eat. And he brought him wine, and he drank. In these verses, really verses 16 to 25, Jacob has seven opportunities, seven opportunities to confess his sin. He should have addressed himself as Jacob at the start. And at the very end, Isaac again asks for Jacob to confirm his identity. Seven times in this text, we're told Jacob had opportunity in one way or another to come clean, and yet he doesn't. 
Pick up here again at verse 26. And his father Isaac said unto him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his raiment and blessed him, and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Lord hath blessed. Therefore, God, give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee, and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be every one that curseth thee, and blessed be he that blesseth thee. And it came to pass, as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, and Jacob was yet scarce gone out of the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. The point in the original, it comes through as well in our English translations, is that there was a very narrow window of time between Jacob's departure from his father and Esau's entrance. And that's also important for the narrative. This is an instance of of providence intervening nearly miraculously, um, even on the back of Jacob's duplicity. Verse 31 And he also had made savory meat and brought it unto his father and said unto his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's venison that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac his father said unto him, Who art thou? And he said, I am thy son, thy firstborn, Esau. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly and said, Who? Where is he that hath taken venison and brought it me? And I have eaten of all before thou camest, and have blessed him. Yea, and he shall be blessed. A number of commentators, I think rightfully, look at Isaac's trembling here as indicating something of a real revelation to the patriarch, perhaps on two levels. One, it's of course a revelation that that Jacob... Jacob disguised himself as his his brother and that Isaac had in fact blessed Jacob, thinking he had blessed Esau. That revelation is unmistakable, we we know that. But there's another level to this that I think we should keep it before us. It's in that last line that I just read. Isaac not only acknowledges that Jacob had received the blessing rather than Esau, but note what he says. And he says here, he shall be blessed. The trembling of Isaac in this case, I think rightfully should be understood here as Isaac recognizing the hand of God. Perhaps, this is also Isaac acknowledging too that he was wrong. Perhaps the trembling is an acknowledgement of both. That God had intervened just as the Lord had promised he would. That Jacob, in spite of Isaac, would indeed receive the blessing. And Isaac here acknowledges that God in his wisdom and omnipotence have brought that to pass. We'll return to that in just a moment, though. We'll commence our reading again at verse 34. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry and said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Thy brother came with subtlety, and hath taken away thy blessing. 
And he said, Is not he rightly named Jacob? For he hath supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. And he said, Hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy Lord, and all his brethren have I given to him for servants. And with corn and wine have I sustained him. And what shall I do now unto thee, my son? And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac his father answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth, and of the dew of heaven from above. And by thy sword shalt thou live, and shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass, when thou shalt have the dominion, that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. This is a bit of an aside. It's taking us perhaps uh, into a digression of sorts. But I want you to notice that promise in verse 40. That Esau, and of course you and I are supposed to understand Edomites in general, and throughout the running history, they will be subjugated to Israel in one way or another. And certainly throughout the history, the history of Palestine, throughout the history of the land of promise, that's precisely what you find until one particular moment. Until a man by the name of Herod sits, as it were, a usurper on the throne of David. That is the first time the first time that an Edomite triumphs and, and does so to subjugate all of the remnant of God's people. This is a promise that that time will come. It's fulfilled just before the coming of Christ. And of course, it would be through Christ that great David's greater son would once again have the throne reclaimed. Verse 41 and Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. And these words of Esau, her elder son, were told to Rebekah. And she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said unto him, Behold thy brother Esau, as touching thee, doth comfort himself, purposing to kill thee. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, and arise, flee thou to Laban, my brother, to Haran, and tarry with him a few days, until thy brother's fury turn away, until thy brother's anger turn away from me, and he forget that which thou hast done to him. Then I will send, and fetch thee from thence. Why should I be deprived also of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of these daughters of Haith. Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Haith, such as these which are of the daughters of the land. What good shall my life do to me? This is the second time that Rebecca raises that question. If you remember back to chapter 25 and verse 22, when uh, the twins are struggling in the womb, she asks grammatically the same question. She asks, what good shall my life do to me? And so here you find 
an expression of Rebecca's grief. These worldlings that Esau has joined himself to have grieved Rebecca existentially. And so keep that before you as you come to verse 1 of chapter 28 now. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Badanaram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. We'll return to this, but note the blessing is reiterated. Jacob is blessed twice in this text. Esau once. And Isaac sent away Jacob, and he went to Badanaram unto Laban, the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. When Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badanaram to take him away from thence, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan, and that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Badanaram. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabioth, to be his wife. Verses 5 to 9 really constitute a single sentence. Esau sees three things. He sees, first of all, that Jacob was sent away to find a wife of Bethuel, or rather of Laban. Secondly, Esau sees that that brings a blessing upon Jacob. Thirdly, Esau discerns, really it seems for the first time, that his Canaanite wives were displeasing to his parents. And therefore Esau goes to the house of Ishmael and takes, takes Mehaleth, the daughter of Ishmael, to be his wife. Now, I know this text is very, very familiar to us. Um, and to kids, typically, it comes as the most familiar part of Jacob's life. But I want you to think about how we've read this text for a moment. I want you to think about how really the last two verses and the last several verses, the first several verses of chapter 28 really situate our understanding of what's going on here. I want you to notice that in this reading, the way that we've taken it from the end of chapter 26 to the beginning of chapter 28 really highlights the fact that Esau, Esau is not the likable, perhaps dull character that often, often he's portrayed of in these texts. That's not Esau's character at all. The man, the man is a worldling. He's a worldling. He loves the world. He fraternizes with the world. And so chapter 27 is situated in that context. And I want you to notice then this 27th chapter leaves us without any likable characters altogether. Esau... Jacob, Rebekah, and Isaac, all of them 
are very pointedly given to us in the most lively colors possible and given to us in a very unflattering way. In order for us to understand that, though, I think it's important for us to ask a very basic question, and that is what really is going on here? So we understand that Esau is a worldling. We were told that in chapter 25. We also understand that, that Jacob is a man who has an interest in the covenant, not only by election, but his heart is set on receiving that. We also understand, too, that, that there was favoritism involved. Rebecca favored Isaac as Esau was favored. Sorry, Jacob was favored by Rebecca as Esau by Isaac. But what is this blessing, that theme that dominates this 27th chapter? I want you to notice, first of all, this is not well-wishing. You are not supposed to understand here that this is just a father who, as it were, is, is, is going to speak kind words to his son before he dies. That's not it at all. Here, Isaac, as his father Abraham before and as Jacob will after him, function as prophets. The patriarchs are functioning as prophetic messengers from God. And so the benediction that's pronounced here is prophecy. And when Isaac says that he is intending to bless Esau, I want you to recognize he's saying, I am going to use my prophetic office to communicate blessing to you. Obviously, there's a problem there. Obviously, here, Isaac is assuming to himself a prerogative that is not his. He is but a messenger, and his blessing is but a message from God. It's not Isaac's to give as such. I want you to keep that in front of you, because as you think about this whole text altogether, that, I think, will help us understand its place in this text. In fact, I want you to recognize that ancient commentators, um, early modern and contemporary commentators, look at chapter 27, And they're somewhat baffled because you and I were given a very, very lively and detailed picture of of a domestic crisis when so many other details are left out. We don't get, as we we would expect perhaps in chapter 26, a greater detail on, on the life of Isaac. But this, this warrants incredible attention. So, so what really is going on here? Why is this emphasized so highly? Well, friend, I want you to think about what's going on in chapter 27 in the rest of the book of Genesis. I said to you before that the theme of this book really can be distilled down to a single sentence, that divine election always confounds human wisdom. And in a real way, that's how you and I are supposed to understand the function of chapter 27 in the broader book. I want you to notice that divine election overcomes Isaac's impiety. Isaac here assumes the prerogative that is only God's. He will bless Esau, even though God had told Rebekah and had notified the home that truly it was only Jacob who would know this covenant blessing. I want you to notice, too, that not only does this thwart Isaac, but it also exposes to us Rebekah's error. Yes, she acknowledged that Jacob was to receive the blessing. She knew that from the beginning. But though, as it were, the object was good, 
the way in which she went about seeking him, of course, was wrong. I want you to notice Jacob's faithlessness. This is emphasized in the text in a very clear way. Jacob wonders, will a curse come upon me instead of the blessing that was promised to me? And Esau, Esau, if you remember back, calls the birthright and the blessing his. In every case, then, you have four characters who have not submitted as they ought to have submitted to divine election. Four characters whose wisdom was confounded through the wisdom of God. And if you're looking through the book of Genesis, I want you to recognize that there is a pattern there. Look at Abraham, Genesis 12. Look at him as he's lying about the identity of Sarah, not only in Egypt, but also again, of course, in Philistia with Abimelech. Duplicity, hoping, as it were, to secure the covenant blessings that God had already promised. Look at Isaac in chapter 26, doing the same thing with his wife, Rebekah. Duplicity, so as, as it were, to attain the covenant blessing. And what is chapter 27? Duplicity, so as to procure the blessing of God. There's a pattern there that I think, I think we need to keep in front of us. Here, this is a covenant home that every time the crisis of the covenant comes upon them, it seems the only way they can find their way through it is by my subterfuge. Now, friend, I want you to think about Esau for a moment, and then we'll close with this. What ought Esau to have done? I said to you already that we should not see Esau in this text as being the the likable but but victimized and somewhat dull character uh, that often I think he's he's portrayed. Esau is a worldling. He's a worldling. He had no interest in the birthright before. And, And the blessing that he now seeks with tears, when you get to Genesis 32, it seems as though the man's forgotten it. So, so he's a worldling through and through. But, but what ought Esau to have done? Well, friend, I want to give you an analogy, and I, I think this is helpful for us as we seek to apply this text to ourselves. And the analogy is taken from the life of David and Jonathan. You remember that moment whenever Jonathan takes the royal robes that he had as a prince of Israel, and he places them on David. I want you to notice in that moment, what Jonathan is doing is he is saying that he acknowledges that divine election has fallen on David. And Jonathan acquiesces in that. Even if that means that Jonathan himself will be of a lesser and, and, and hold a lesser status generally in society than David. He acknowledges that freely. That is a way, that is the way that Esau ought to have, ought to have responded to the preference over, of Jacob, but he doesn't. And so, friend, I think we're, we will have to stop there. Um, we will return. There are a couple of points of application um, next Lord's Day morning that I'd like to get to that will hold together. Uh, chapters 25, chapter 28. But let's close uh, this morning by coming to the throne of grace once more. Let's stand and pray. Our blessed and eternal God, we thank you, Father, that you are so kind. 
and so merciful. We thank you that in your grace, you're pleased to employ omnipotence, that your people may indeed be blessed, and that your grace overcomes the sins of their enemies as well as their own, so that those promises, not one would fall to the ground. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We confess our sinfulness. We confess our faithlessness. And we pray that you would graciously be at work within us, that to learn from the examples that we've seen this morning and to live then more like Christ because of it. For so we ask all in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.